Wigmore Hall's Haydn String Quartet series is a wonderful chance to get to know the foundation on which a whole repertoire is built. Other composers were writing pieces for two violins, viola and cello, but it took Haydn to see the beauty of the wood rather than just the trees. He it was who saw that the cello need not always be stuck with the bass line, that not all the tunes should be given to the first fiddle, and above all that there's more to an accompaniment than umcha-cha. Haydn's quartet is a model of a particular society. Yes, there's a leader, but everyone's got their indispensable job to take pride in. Here, after a few chords, the cello has the tune, followed by the viola, and then at last everyone joins in. The Doric Quartet's recording of Opus 76, number one, on the Wigmore Hall Live label. Two's company, three's a crowd, but four can be a fellowship. A quartet of four players fits in perfectly with the stage that harmony was reaching in Haydn's time. J.S. Bach had carried four-part harmony to a chromatic perfection in his chorales, and now the new generation, led by Bach's own sons, were reacting with a simplification, a clarification of direction, as they worked out the dramatic possibilities of new forms. Dr. Burney, the great music historian of the time, described these new forms as observing the law of contrast as a principle. These days we tend to call that sonata form, and if we're not careful we vanish into a thicket of jargon about second subjects and development sections. But Haydn, as we'll see, often liked to use the same idea for both his first and second subjects, while Mozart's developments often invent a completely new melody rather than uh, developing anything. The one thing they both do for contrast is to change key. And at this stage in history, four instruments are just the right number to do that. Listen for when all four instruments try out a couple of chords and then sit on a weird chord before finally picking a key. Dorics again, Opus 76, number one, on Wigmore Hall Live. 
A century and a half later, when chords generally contained more notes, Schoenberg needed a sextet to express the harmonies in his Verklärte Nacht. Debussy's players needed to play double stops and flashing figures of arpeggios to cram in all the notes in his one quartet. While it was only Bartok's invention of a new, spare, pared-down harmonic language that made it possible for him to write six of them, practically a willed rewriting of musical history. Haydn lived at the perfect time, a moment when musical history, new dramatic ideas of form and writing in four parts came together to form a new genre, and the Haydn series at Wigmore Hall shows us what he did with that moment. Because if it hadn't been Haydn, it might not have worked. It needed a man who could see inexhaustible possibilities in the simplest things, because it was simple things that helped audiences to cotton on to what was happening, and it was the inexhaustible possibilities that made it worth their while. Here, for instance, what started out as a simple tune gets turned into a round between cello and viola before the violins turn the whole thing upside down. Quartet playing Haydn's Opus 50 number no. 2 in C. We're putting together two podcasts to take you deeper into Haydn's quartets. This first one will take us up to 1785, the year Haydn turned 53, a good mature age for those days, though of course he lived in the end until the ripe old age of 77. The significant event of 1785 was the publication of the six quartets that Mozart dedicated to Haydn. The interactions between the two composers are wonderful to observe. Mozart arrived in Vienna just as Haydn's Opus 33 set of quartets was published and immediately started to write quartets again himself after a gap of nine years or so, which, being Mozart, was about a quarter of his life, so a significant pause. After the dedicatee and the composer together had played through Mozart's new quartets, Haydn returned to composing quartets after a period of six years in which he'd written only one. 1785 is a very appropriate watershed, the key year in one of history's greatest musical friendships. Haydn regarded the six Opus 9 quartets of the late 1760s as the beginning of his work, and by 1771, when he published the Opus 17 set of six, he had really got into his stride. Let's look at Opus 17, number 6, in D major. Its first movement is a very jolly presto in jig time. Here's Haydn's first idea, just four bars long. He starts it again, and this time he plays with the second half, lengthening it. Emphatic cadence into a new key. Listen how he sticks in an extra bar to try to convince us. 
But no, back to the start again, and this time even more fun with the second half. The first violin has a little chromatic cadenza and suddenly darts off to a very odd key, C major, and we started in D. But Haydn's modulations are like those word chains, where each link is logical, though the end may not be. Dog to cat, for instance, could be dog, cog, cot, cat, changing one letter each time. And here Haydn shows us that C major uses the same notes as A minor, which becomes A major, which takes us back to D major, which was the place that we started. There's a comical moment in the second part of the movement when the first violin seems about to go off on its chromatic cadenza again, but this time, fearful of his destination, the other instruments join in and drag the leader to the correct key, the tonic, D major. to try to experience quartets as if you're one of the players, well, one of the actors, really, enjoying the roles that Haydn creates for you. The swaggering cellist, the versatile competence of the second violin, the irresponsible leader, the dogged determination, perhaps, of the viola, Mozart's preferred instrument. I asked Oliver Heath, the leader of the Heath Quartet, about the personalities of instruments. There are definite roles which you assume when you play Haydn. The second violin and viola are often such a kind of tight unit. So you do have that element, but within that there's a huge autonomy. There's so much room for expression and for imagination and can take so much creativity when you're playing, I think, Haydn. So there's a kind of default position, yeah. role that you play, but within that there's huge variation and huge scope for interpretation. It sounds as if there might be more scope for, for role-playing in Haydn than perhaps in some, I don't know, romantic composers. Would, would you say that's the case? Absolutely, yeah. I definitely agree with that. I think the way that Haydn uses rhetoric in his composition allows you to converse with one another in a way that very few other composers do. And certainly when you get into more romantic, more dense writing, that transparency of the textures, which allows for the conversation, for the discourse to be so clear to the audience, that's kind of lost. I sense it in Bartok too, very much so, but I think Bartok can leave less experienced listeners a little bit confused because of the complexities of the rhythm and harmony but I think once you really get under the skin of the Bartok quartets you have a very similar sense of the rhetoric and the discourse and the way that we interact with one another in such a kind of clear and, and transparent way. Something Bartok learned from Haydn perhaps? I definitely think so yeah. You mentioned that the second violin and the viola form a, a tight group. I mean, are they in a way entrusted with keeping the other two of you um, a little bit in order? I mean, do, do you find yourself as a leader, you're, you're sometimes allowed a bit of leash 
and then the second violin and the viola think oh, that's enough of that absolutely i'm i'm often reminded of martin lovett's way of describing a string quartet the first violinist being the late uh, it was a bottle of wine first violin is the label the cellist is the bottle and the second violinist and the violist are the actual wine itself so that gives you an idea of what the second violin and viola are doing um it absolutely creates the internal pulse of the group and from that i can't stray too much a little bit but i do get a look (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned the listeners and uh, I wonder if they're not just listeners, are they? They're watchers sometimes. I mean, how important is the visual aspect of being able to see which violin is doing what, for instance? I think the visual aspect is extremely important. So often after concerts, people will talk to us about how much they've enjoyed seeing us interact. And uh, we started a couple of years ago, we started standing as a group and since then as well, the way that we move with the music that, you know, often people referencing how we seem to be dancing and uh, yeah I think with the elements of conversation and discourse that go on to actively kind of see the material being passed from one to another the conversation playing out much like you would do action on a theatre stage you know it's a very similar thing I think particularly string quartets it's so important to have the live experience to to be able to see it happening I think more so than solo piano music, for example, or that kind of thing. Um, there, there is so much, and with with more modern repertoire as well. I think it can really unlock the complexities when you see it happening. If you go home and you put a Bartok Schoenberg CD on, you're not. There's not many clues there if you don't if you're not familiar with the music. But if you're seeing it happen, then you're given all kinds of visual pointers and a visual kind of adventure that's being played out on stage and I think that very much stems back to Haydn that element of seeing the energy being passed around the group and the conversation being bounced around off one another and of course it's because he was a player himself yeah I mean you get such a strong sense that he was a masterful musician and I think that's part of the joy of playing Haydn is that he knew what he was doing so well he had a mastery of the four instruments that I don't know if anyone else did in my opinion he he, he not even Mozart well probably yes Mozart as well but I always get the sense that Mozart is meant for the stage you know he's he's fundamentally an opera composer and the characters that you're embodying are big personalities and you have to kind of go into an exaggerated operatic style way of playing and with Haydn it's about people and about human experience and about the realities of life and emotions and it's very intimate and obviously it reflects how he composes and his style I just have a sense that the way he uses the instruments the way he uses register and timbre, the way he uses keys more than anything, the sonorities that he can create through an unexpected modulation. There's no one that has as much knowledge, I don't think, as he does. Oliver Heath. 
Nothing can compensate for the sound and the sight of the four players in a string quartet, certainly. But as I sit here playing my piano, I can take comfort from the fact that that's how Haydn used to demonstrate his latest string quartets to visitors. Most of the first movements in the Opus 17 set are much slower than the D major. Take Opus 17 number 4. Haydn has great fun teasing us with all the possible meanings of just a couple of longish notes, E-flat and G. The first violin begins with them, and they turn out to be in C minor. Then everything breaks off. That's a very common device in Haydn, and it's supposed to make us think, what on earth will come next? The answer this time is the same two notes, but they turn out to be in a different key altogether. Some composers would have thought it was the wrong key, but Haydn can wriggle out of anything. Here we are in a new key, the proper key, the relative major, E-flat, and there the two notes are still in the bass. They lead us into the second part of the movement too. and then on to a very strange key of flats where there are no open strings, so the music takes on a veiled quality. And there's a marvellous moment when Haydn seems to have forgotten which key he started in. After these expansive, not-too-fast opening movements, a minuet is always a good contrast. Haydn didn't turn his minuets into scherzos, that's the Italian for joke, until his Opus 33 quartets of 1781, but even here in Opus 17, ten years earlier, there are fast minuets as well as stately ones. Like the minuet of number four in C minor. It's in the major key, so that's a contrast to begin with. And it's a typical example of how Haydn plays with phrase lengths. No dull four-bar phrases for him. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. And after that, the second part could have begun but Haydn's so in love with that opening phrase that he sticks it on at the beginning again and then he has to adjust the length of the phrase. So after he's gone 14, we get After the end, he brings the opening phrase back again. Mm -hmm. 
After the minuets, the slow movements form a centre of repose in the structure of the quartets as a whole. The slow movement of Opus 17, number 5, is a recitative and aria for the first violin. It reminds us that a great deal of Haydn's work for his fabulously wealthy patron, Prince Nikolaus Esterhazy, lay in the brand new opera house at the Prince's answer to Versailles in the desolate marshes of Hungary. Haydn's own running catalogue of his works lists eight operas from the 1760s alone. Let's look at the Opus 20 set of quartets, published in 1772, the year after Opus 17. The great musicologist Sir Donald Tovey thought that no document in the history of music was more important than these quartets. In the slow movement of Opus 20 number 5, we hear a beautiful F major tune, repeated more or less with a descant for Luigi Tomassini to play. He was the excellent leader of Haydn's orchestra at Esterhazy. Every aspect of these Opus 20 quartets is wonderful, but their crowning glory is their finales. Perhaps because of the desultory nature of concert life in the 18th century, quite a lot of works used to end just with a minuet, perhaps with a few variations, after which presumably the noble listeners, not unduly aroused, could pick up their coffee cups and carry on with the gossip. Haydn had already confronted this problem by providing witty, fast final movements, but in Opus 20 he moved beyond even that. That beautiful slow movement of number five, for instance, is followed by a fugue on two serious subjects. 
Later, Haydn turns that into a mirror fugue, al rovescio. The first violin plays, and the second violin plays, so together, and finally he puts it in canon between the cello and the violin. the 1770s, Haydn became ever busier in his opera house. It must have been a bit like Sir Tony Hall finding time to compose the operas, as well as inventing the symphony in his spare time. So naturally, the string quartet took a back seat for a while. By 1779, after 18 years working for the Esterhazes, Haydn was famous enough to negotiate a new contract from a prince, perhaps afraid that his brilliant Kapellmeister might be lured away. In the 1761 contract, it had been the prince who owned all Haydn's compositions. Henceforth, they belonged to the composer. And as luck would have it, the music publisher Artaria was just setting up in Vienna. And so, in 1781, Haydn produced the six quartets of Opus 33, describing them himself as being in a quite new, special manner. Some suspicious scholars regard this merely as a vulgar sales pitch, but as we've seen, they seem to have impressed Mozart. What does Oliver Heath think? I think if you were to apply it to the Opus 20 quartets, I would have no hesitation in agreeing with it, and possibly the Opus 50s. But I think in many ways the Opus 33s seem to be quite conservative in the way that they are put together the kind of nuts and bolts of the composition. What Haydn is doing in the Opus 33 quartet, you think, well, that's just, that's the basis of how it is. And I suppose at the time, that probably wasn't the basis of how it is. At the time, it probably was something very new. But I guess it's created such a kind of fundamental way of how a string quartet is used by composers. And from that point, people have gone into all kinds of unexpected places. Um, so I suppose if you were there at the time they were published, it probably would make a lot of sense. But looking back in time, I, you see the Opus 20s and there's a freedom and he seems completely emancipated from um, the way that quartets were written beforehand, very overly dominated by the first violin and that kind of thing. And, and it's so imaginative and so kind of daring with what he does. And I think, well, that's the one that was really pushing the boundaries. And in some ways, Opus 33 was a step back because the second violin and viola are often doing very similar things. The cellist usually has the bass line. I usually have the theme. And we just kind of go on like that. So what you're saying is that Haydn was recognising as a, as a new form what has now become the typical form. That's exactly right, yeah. That's, that's, how I, that's how I see them. Not to say that we don't love playing them, though, of course, and all of them have something very, very special about them. They have so much character. I think there's a clarity and a directness to the world that each one inhabits, which is unique to that set. It's so clear what they're about, what their nature is. Have they got more nicknames than the Opus 21s? There's a few nicknames, I think. There's the bird, of course. There is, I think, there's one called How Do You Do, 
because it begins with a perfect cadence. So yeah, there's a few nicknames. We try and avoid the ones with nicknames. <laughs> They're the ones that everyone plays. And there are just so many wonderful Haydn quartets out there. We've played all of the Opus 33 quartets, apart from the ones with nicknames, actually. So I know we're being a bit contrary about it, but there you go. Oliver Heath. Let's have a look at some of Haydn's tricks with keys in Opus 33. The first quartet plays its cards very close to its chest. It starts off as if it's in D major. Ah, but it's in B minor and the cello picks up that initial phrase. Dramatic break off and then a chord builds up. Again. And then a different chord breaks up. Surprise. And when Haydn does get to D major, it's the same tune at the same pitch. In the scherzando, the first violin has a bit where he repeats notes across strings. As if I were using one hand after the other there, I suppose, but a very particular effect. And then after that, everybody heaves themselves up one note and we have one of those famous unisons. And towards the end of that section, Haydn finds another thing to do with that note, not to push it up, In the slow movement, the tune is divided between the first violin and the cello. Violin first. And then the cello has it. Finale has a very simple tune based on an arpeggio. But even a simple tune like that can turn into a cannon in Haydn's hands. And these scherzos in Opus 33 Here's the G major, number five. Everybody's in three except the first violin. And then there's a marvellous breaking off before the cadence at the end. And that wittily detached cadence at the end harks all the way back to the first movement, which actually begins with the final cadence. We're almost at the end of our first podcast. We've seen Haydn seize his historical moment and take full advantage of his commercial freedom. 
In the second one, we'll be looking at the quartets written in friendly competition with Mozart. And now that I've done so much preliminary explaining at the piano, it'll be actual string quartets playing our musical examples. Move on to the second podcast to finish the story.